0: Think for a moment about all of the freedoms you enjoy. Elder Steve encouraged us in light of those who defend our freedoms and reminded us of that. But think for a minute about the freedoms that you enjoy. Because today we regularly hear about or we see examples from all around the world in this kind of global village of ours where we can get so much news, see so many images, see people sharing things from all around the world, we know how much suffering there really is. How much injustice and oppression there really is all around the world, even here in our own country. Though we can easily take such things for granted, and what I mean is our freedoms, it's not difficult for us then to identify those freedoms. To be able to look and see, All that and think, wow, I am truly blessed in these ways. So again, think for a moment about all of the freedoms you currently enjoy. Now, for which one of these are you most grateful? For which one of these freedoms are you most grateful? Which means the most to you? Look with me, if you would, at Acts 13. This is one of the chapters, as I mentioned, from our Bible reading plan from last week. Last time we were together, we highlighted the fact that this book, the book of Acts, highlights how God, almost 2,000 years ago, supernaturally advanced His Word in those early days of the church. What we find here in Acts 13 is no exception to that rule. It's just continuing with that same theme. Especially because if we look at it, we see that this chapter begins with the Holy Spirit speaking to believers in the very young church at Antioch. One of the things, if you recall, that we talked about in terms of the book of Acts is it's called the Acts of the Apostles. But really, we we could call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, right? Because we see Him routinely at work through the apostles and through others, like we said, to supernaturally advance the message about Christ, the gospel. So we see the church at work. So we see the Spirit speaking to these believers at Antioch. And what did God's Spirit communicate to these believers? We'll take a look at verse 2 of chapter 13. Verse 2, the Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas... And Saul for the work to which I have called them. And that's exactly what this church does. If you go on to read. Saul of course, when we read Saul's name there. (laughs) Saul represents another clear supernatural work of the Spirit of God. Doesn't he? The once infamous persecutor of the church was now amazingly proclaiming the name he once sought to stamp out. That's supernatural, isn't it? That's, that's, that's mind-boggling to us. So, the name of Jesus that Paul was proclaiming. Now, as we move down from verse 2 of this chapter, we find a really helpful note in verse 9. It says, Saul, who was also called Paul. And this is a pivot point in the book of Acts where we will not refer to him as Saul any longer. He will always be Paul from this moment out. Saul's name will appear, but it's always in references to what happened in the past, like his vision on the road to Damascus. But from here on out in the flow of the narrative, he will always be referred to as Paul. So we just want to make sure we note that as we're reading for the sake of comprehension So where has the Holy Spirit sent Paul and Barnabas? We'll throw a graphic up here for you so you can see. He sent them west by sea to the island of Cyprus. You can see where Antioch in Syria is there. Christian, can you put, there's a little map I think that we've got on the side. There it is. There it is. So you can see where over Antioch, just north of the land of Israel, Right? You can see where that that's, they're being sent out from there. And they're being sent out first to the island of Cyprus, as you read this past week. And then after that, to the Roman province of Asia Minor, which today is the country we call Turkey. So you can see that to the north. Uh, interestingly, if you look right in the center of that map and right in the center of what we call Turkey today you can see that these men who had set set out from Antioch in Syria now found themselves in a city called Antioch. Yeah, another Antioch. So there's a a second Antioch. The first one was the, the better known one in Syria called Antioch on the Orontes. This is called Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch. This is where they find themselves. So... Even though our main text is way down in verses 38 and 39, that's the direction we're headed. It's important to understand the context here. We read in verse 14 that these men went to the local synagogue on the Sabbath day. And in verse 15, they were invited to address the crowd. They didn't in any way force themselves uh, on this group. They were invited to address the crowd Probably because they were, because Paul was a a teacher of the law. They were visitors. They were given the chance to address the gathering of of, of Jews there in Antioch. We see that verse 15. So beginning in verse 16, Paul is not going to pass up a chance to address the entire synagogue. This is exactly what he is ready for. Verse 16, Paul begins to preach to these Jewish listeners. This is the first of Paul's sermons or messages recorded in the book of Acts. It's a little bit of information in chapter 9 where it says that he was preaching that Jesus was the Messiah in the synagogues. But this is our first full kind of transcript of what Paul was preaching. So everything, sorry, everything in verses 17, as he begins to, as Paul tells his listeners goes back and recounts Jewish history in verses 17 through 22. All of that is simply meant meant to get them up to King David. Right? Abraham, Moses, King David, Samuel, King David. That's, That's all Paul's kind of trying to do is get to King David in the story of history. And then from that point, from David, it's from David that Paul links the past to the present in verse 23. Do you see that? Of this man's offspring, King David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. This is the first time that these individuals would ever have heard about Jesus, the son of David. So this is the new pivot in the story all of a sudden that these Jews are hearing. Who who is He talking about here? Who is He pointing us to? To David, but then a descendant of David who is this Jesus? Well, Paul says verse so, so everything from verse 23 down to our main verse is focused on unpacking that question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So keep that in mind as we get down to verse, uh, as we get down to verse 38. This is the first of Paul's sermons. Uh, again, in the book of Acts, look at what he says in verse 38. Having led up to this point, Paul declares to them, unpacking who Jesus is, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. He's, a, he's highlighted already his death and resurrection. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. There's good news. And by Him, listen to this, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Wow! Did you hear that? What is going through their minds at this point when He says this? By Him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, I've got three crucial questions that we need, we need to think about, ask about this verse. Obviously, the first one, that I mean, one aside from those three, is just who is the man he's talking about here? We know it's Jesus. He's just led us up to that point. Paul is telling them in verse 38, Therefore, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through Jesus Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So, Paul is talking about Jesus. Here are the three crucial questions that we need to answer about this passage. Ready? Number one, what does Paul mean by freed? Number two, why did the law of Moses fail? And number three, how exactly does Jesus free us? We'll have all of these up on the screen in just a minute. We'll go through each one. So again, what does it mean, that, what does Paul mean by freed, F-R-E-E-D? Number two, why did the law of Moses fail? And number three, how exactly does Jesus free us? That may have been, Those may have been questions that the, the listeners in Antioch were asking themselves since they're hearing this amazing news about forgiveness of sins and freedom. So first of all, when he tells them that everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses, that first question is, what does Paul mean by freed? And to understand this concept, we do need to go back and understand the Greek word Paul originally used with these listeners. There are lots of Bible study methods out there that will get you focused on key words. I'll tell you this, having spent decades preaching the word of God... In a lot of passages, not a lot is writing on one single word. That if you have to know it it, from your reference sources, that everything has changed. It's not usually that way. Usually the translations are good enough and the context provides everything that you need to know. That nothing's really hinged on a word. Usually in some verses, it's more about the flow of thought. It's about the emphasis. About the pattern of the writer, the author's intention in kind of building an argument. But there are certain verses where a word, a particular word is really critical. And at that point, you do need to have those tools in your toolbox to be able to say, what is that word right there? I want to understand it better. I want to kind of dig into that word because it may unlock something for me that I'm not just going to get right away from just reading through the verse. So that is important at times to have that skill. And we're going to do that right now because this word is particularly interesting. The word translated freed here is the word in Greek, dikaio, "dikeao," "dikeao." That's a verb. Now, what's interesting about this word is that it doesn't literally mean freed. So when Jesus, for example, famously declared, take a look at the screen, When he famously declared, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. John 8, 32 and 36. He wasn't using this word. This is not the word that he's using there. But, he was talking about the same freedom that we are talking about. Okay, what's incredibly helpful to understand about this word, dikai'ao, is how Paul himself uses it in his letters. This is the wonderful thing. We're listening to Paul preach a sermon in the book of Acts, and we can actually say, okay, what do we know about Paul? What do we know about his theological thinking? What do we know about his knowledge of God and of the gospel? Well, guess what? We have a ton of other material, his letters that take us into the mindset of Paul. So this is not just a character and a story that's inaccessible to us. This is a real historical account of a man who wrote letters, and we can actually dig into those letters and say, what does he mean? So we're asking a question when he used this word, how did he use this word? Dikai A'o. Dikai A'o. Well, listen, here's one example you'll probably recognize. Ready? Take a look, Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, wait a minute. I don't see the word freed there. I don't see the word freedom there. I don't see the word just free in any form in that Verse from Romans 4. So, so what's going on here? But, but the same Greek word is there. In fact, it's probably the most central word in that verse. In that verse, the word is translated justifies. Justifies. And that's how it's usually translated most of the times that it occurs in the New Testament. To justify. To count someone as righteous. To acquit someone of all charges against them. That's how the word is often used. So why is it translated freed in the ESV and a few other translations? Well, that's what helps us understand our initial, our original question. What kind of freedom is Paul talking about here? When he says that you can be freed, what does he mean by that? Well, this term, what's unique about this passage is this term is rarely combined with the preposition from. So in Acts 15, the preposition from is tacked onto this word. To be justified from. Well, that's not really the normal language. Like in Romans, it's not justified from something. But when it is used this way, it seems to be pointing to freedom from a legal penalty. It's like saying this, that prisoner was justified from death row. Okay, now wait a minute. Now we have a kind of freedom that really begins to make sense here. He was justified from death row. What does that mean? It means that he was freed from death row because all the charges against him, he was acquitted of all of them. And this fits really nicely with what we read in Acts thirteen thirty nine, since Paul makes it clear here that he's talking about when he's speaking, he's speaking with a specific legal context in mind. He is talking about a, a, a legal framework, isn't he? It's called the law of Moses. He's got the law in mind. This is about what's legal, a legal framework. So keep that in mind, this idea of being justified from this kind of freedom. And that leads to our second question. Why did the law of Moses fail? Why did the law of Moses fail? Romans 3.20, Paul makes this same exact point. Take a look. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's the same thing he told the people in Antioch, isn't it? Right? That's the same exact expression, the same idea. The law is not going to free you in this way. You're not going to be justified in this way. But look at what he adds to the end of this sentence in Romans 3.20. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, what does that mean? Well, if we just back it up, we're going to see that Paul is expanding on what he revealed in the previous verse. Here's chapter three verse 19, Romans 3:19. Take a look. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Oh boy. So the law of God brings knowledge of our sin and thus it details the full extent of our sinful condition. And when you detail the full extent of someone's desperate condition, when you lay out every way in which they could possibly be guilty you will find that everyone is condemned. Everyone is condemned. Paul had come to understand that though the law of God could at times help people avoid sinful choices, it provided guardrails at times. He he had come to understand that the law could not deal with the sin already at work inside of sinners like us. It might turn us from, at times, from ways to go. wasn't It wasn't going to change our hearts, though. It wasn't going to deal. It couldn't deal with the sin inside of us. In fact, it simply provoked that sin and identified that sin and locked us down under that sin. It simply confirmed our condemnation, since no one can fully keep the law as it should be kept, as it must be kept. But God was still at work in all of this, wasn't He? And Paul goes on to explain that in a letter like Galatians. Take a look at Galatians 3.24. Paul says the law was in fact our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be decaiao a'o, justified by faith. And that brings us to our supremely important third question. Here's that third question. How exactly does Jesus set us free? What was Paul proclaiming? This good news to those in Antioch. What was he saying? Well, the first part of an answer to that question is found in verse 38. Take a look at that again. What precisely is now possible through this man that Paul was announcing? What was now possible through him that the law could never perfectly provide? Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Sure, the law included forgiveness through animal sacrifices, but these were ultimately inadequate to fully and finally deal with sin. What if you didn't come with the right heart? What if you didn't come with the right sacrifice? What if you didn't come at the right time? What if you missed something? What if it was before the, the high priest had made uh, atonement for all of the sins, even the unintentional sins you didn't know? And how could an animal take away and cover the atonement, the blood, the, the 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 guilt of a person? Right? You could just keep going. And the fact that these sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over and over again. You see the law. These animal sacrifices, this provision of sacrifice, these were ultimately inadequate to fully and finally deal with sin. Again, using that key word, decaiao, Paul's letters can help us better understand Paul's sermon here in Acts 13. Specifically in regard to forgiveness of sins. Take a look at this. This is Galatians 3, 11 through 13 Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Not by the law, but by faith. But the law is not of faith, Paul confirms. Rather, the one who does them, the commandments, shall live by them. See that contrast? Works, not faith. Works, not faith. Christ, verse 13, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from that curse of the law. He paid a redemption price. He paid a ransom to free us from the condemnation incurred by us sinners under God's law. And that's exactly where Paul pointed his readers in Antioch. Look back at Acts 13, at the end of verse 27. The Jewish leaders, he said, actually fulfilled the prophets by condemning Jesus. They fulfilled the prophets by condemning Jesus. Verse 28. And, they, and, and though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the what? The tree. Interesting study. Go and study the use of the word tree in the book of Acts in place of the cross. The tree. Peter's twice used this in reference to forgiveness of sins. He's talked about Christ on the tree. So they took Him down from the tree, that is the cross, and they laid Him in a tomb. But, verse 30, God raised Him from the dead. How does Jesus free us from everything from which we cannot be freed by the law? That is, by our own works? Through the ransom through the redemption price that He paid with His own blood for our sins and through His resurrection from the dead giving us power to live a new life of freedom. Freedom through faith alone. Freedom from the oppressiveness and futility of our own works. Freedom from trying to be good enough. Is that good news to your ears? That is true freedom. Let's summarize this real quickly. Paul was offering his listeners in Antioch a freedom that was never, they were never able to experience through the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law. That is freedom from the law's penalty. So is God guilty of injustice then by not punishing guilty people like us? No. That penalty was handed out. That penalty was handed out. It was laid on Jesus, wasn't it? As He hung on the cross. But when God raised him from the dead, he also made another freedom possible. Remember what we said about the law's failure. Though it could at times help people avoid sinful choices, it could provide guardrails of sort, it could not deal with the sin already at work inside of us. But Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, take a look. But now we are released from the law. Having died through Christ to that which held us captive. So that we serve, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. That's how you serve if you serve God. You serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Isn't that amazing how we're looking at Acts and we're seeing Paul's theology come out in his sermon? His first recorded sermon to Jewish brothers and sisters there in Antioch. We're getting this theology coming through. We want more of it in the book of Acts, don't we? Right? We want to understand. Interestingly enough, both Peter and Paul don't go into a lot of detail at all in their sermons about the the idea of the substitution on the cross. They really focus on the resurrection a lot more than they do what was happening on the cross. But all you need to do is even just go into their letters and you can see this theology becoming unpacked of what really did happen at the cross. This idea that Jesus became a curse, bearing the curse of the law, that He bore our sins in His body on the tree, according to Peter in his first letter, chapter 2, the very end. So both Paul and Peter... Their preaching is available to us in the book of Acts and we go into their letters and we get, just get so much more about what they were saying and we see the same, these are the same men preaching and writing. So please consider what is true for us just as it was true for those in Antioch. Here it is. The resurrection of Jesus makes possible And the Spirit of God, the new way of the Spirit, the Spirit of God empowers a new way to serve God in freedom. Freedom. Here's how that freedom works. Let's get real practical. The law said, for example, you shall not commit adultery. We'll put these texts up. You shall not commit adultery. Exodus 20, verse 14. There's the law. It's laid out can that law free you no oh, it cannot free you can it give you help in avoiding this such things as as adultery yes right it can provide that that guidance that we need the question is will we obey it will we follow it and at times god has used this this is how one of the ways the law became our guardian to help us until Christ came. But we also know some we also know this. Then after the commandment is given through Moses, then Jesus takes us deeper in Matthew 5:28, saying, "I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart." Things just got real, guys, right? So much deeper now. Paul And Jesus is not giving a new law. He's basically saying, this was the intent of the law. To work on this in us. To indict and point to this in us. And if you think you're innocent because you have not actually gone out and committed adultery with someone's husband or wife, then think again because you are condemned by the lust at work in your heart. Wow, now we really begin to understand being held captive by the law, don't we? If the law is not just about the written letter and the, the actual act, but is about our hearts and our motives and our thoughts, if the law analyzes and judges, judges us in this way, as Jesus has said here, again, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the words of Christ comes the knowledge of sin. And we are held accountable. The whole world, mouths are shut. What does that mean, mouths are shut? It means no one is going to stand before God and somehow give God an adequate defense of their own purity or righteousness or holiness based on their conduct, based on their thoughts, based on their motives. No one can do that except Jesus Christ. Not one of us. Every mouth is stopped. The whole world held accountable. So again, you shall not not commit adultery. Jesus points us deeper to our heart. Adultery in the heart. You see, the law could forbid adultery and thus condemn us, but it couldn't fix lust. It could condemn adultery, but it couldn't fix lust. That's where freedom Through Jesus comes in. His death made it possible. It made possible our forgiveness and His resurrection made possible a new self which according to Ephesians 4.24 is not enslaved to lust, that new self, but was in fact created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's your new self. That's your new self. How is it created? Not held captive by lust. It's held. Ca- it's actually defined by true righteousness and holiness, just as Paul announced in that synagogue long ago. Here is good news, brothers and sisters, friends. Because of Jesus, we can now be changed. You have to. You have to want to be changed. <laughs> You have to know that you need to be changed, or else this is not really good news. It's just like, huh, ah, it's interesting, huh ah, theology mm-hmm. you know, but if you're desperate for change in your life, then you should hear this and rejoice. God has made change real change possible so is is that it? Does God now just take lust or 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 hate or greed? Or jealousy? Does He just take it away now when we look to Jesus? Is it just gone? Are we talking about freedom from the presence of such things? No. But He does renew our minds towards that goal. He is renewing us toward that kind of absolute change. How is He doing that? Well, first, take take note of these three items. How does this change take place in us? How do we experience freedom? First of all, He frees us from the weight of condemnation. Do you want to experience freedom in Christ? Then know that in Christ, you are freed from that weight of condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ's. Jesus, hallelujah. Praise God. There is no condemnation. Brother, sister, friend, listen. There is condemnation from which you need to be freed this morning. God knows your heart. He knows you're struggling. He knows and understands that there is condemnation that is crushing you this morning the good news is that Christ has set you free from that condemnation. It's not, it's not freedom the law could give because the law would only end up condemning you. But it's freedom that Jesus Christ can give. Second, true freedom gives us true perspective. Please hear this. True freedom gives us true perspective. For example, what kind of love or belonging or pleasure can something like lust give you that could ever compare to everything Jesus has secured for His people? That's freedom from deception, brothers and sisters. To think that the things of this world really could be meaningful to us and matter to us and endure significantly so that they minister to the deepest parts of us. When when, when, when God says to us, don't you see that everything you're looking for from that envy, that greed that animosity and hatred, that lust, everything you're looking to get that you think satisfies you, there is something far, far, far better. A far better, true, pure version of that very thing that I've given you and secured for you through My Son. There is freedom to see now. To let the blinders be removed just as Paul had literally experienced himself. Through the Gospel, we have new eyes to rightly recognize counterfeits, don't we? We have new eyes to rightly recognize counterfeits. Third, talking about freedom that Christ brings. Experiencing freedom. Third, we have power through God's Spirit to live in light of that new perspective. We don't, we don't simply just know the new perspective. We can actually live in light of that. We can live in light of that through God's Spirit. Because look, look on the screen here. 2 Corinthians 3.17 tells us, for where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. There is freedom. You see, same, same Paul from Acts 13 writing here now to the Corinthians. In that passage, he's talking about the veil over Jewish eyes. Once it's removed by the Spirit of God, there's what? Freedom. New Covenant freedom. God knows that for some of you this morning, there is control from which you need to be freed. He knows it's leading you astray and there is therefore a helplessness in you that is robbing you of hope. But is offered to you this morning, and it's freely given, is the promise of change and the promise of power to change. Power. Or maybe he, believer, is calling you back to these things today because you veered off course. Friends, we know this. We live in a nation that regularly and rightly celebrates, cherishes, discusses, fights over its many freedoms, don't we? We live in that country. And yet, so many, the majority of people we are interacting with every day are not truly free they are not truly free that is they do not have freedom the freedom that only Jesus makes possible do you have that freedom are you walking in that freedom you can never be good enough to experience such freedom that's good news this morning So give up on that. You'll never be freed through that. You can never be good enough to secure or experience such freedom. But what you can do is you can look to Christ. You can set eyes of faith on Jesus Christ. And you can rest in what He did and in what only He makes possible now in your life. That's freedom. That is freedom and shouldn't that freedom be shouldn't that be the freedom for which we are most grateful above every other kind of freedom that we have because without that freedom really in the end none of the other freedoms truly matter there will come an end to this world there will become an end to this age and in the next age what will matter is what god has accomplished for his glory in the lives of his people and he is calling you to faith today faith alone Through the works of the law, no person will be justified. But there is a righteousness that comes through faith. As Paul said, what did he say to to those that he was ministering to? By Him, everyone who believes is freed from everything the law could never free you from. Anyone who believes. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray.